0: Well, it's great to be here uh, this morning. Thank you for the invitation to, to come and share. I'm, I'm excited to, to be in your midst. And I understand this church is doing a series on Proverbs, everyday wisdom. And, um, and so I'm excited to be able to speak about, about the Proverbs. And what we're looking at today are a set of Proverbs which deal with wealth and poverty and money generally. And I don't know about you, but we can tend to clinch up a bit when we hear that we're talking about money, put up some defenses. It can be a pretty sensitive topic. As a culture, we don't really like talking about money, not not in ways that matter anyway. And I can't decide whether John Paul is being really wise or really foolish to let a guest speaker talk on this. Perhaps wise because he saves himself from any flack, but perhaps foolish because some new guy talks about this sensitive topic. But anyway, we're here, so let's go with it. I mean, I think money is one of those things that just feels really personal. It feels like we want to sort of resist other people's like, right to speak into how we use our money. It's like part of our common courtesy that you don't really talk about money, not in detail anyway. But the unfortunate thing is, No one taught this common courtesy to Jesus, because Jesus always talks about money. It's one of his biggest things. Whether he's criticizing people who boast about how much money they give when they're holding a lot back as well, or telling a parable of a rich man who oppressed poor Lazarus and then got his just desserts in the afterlife, or telling us to give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God. What is God's or really hard statements, like it's harder for a camel to go, wait, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, or telling us that we cannot serve both God and money. And you know what? I think Jesus talks about this topic precisely because we don't want to talk about it. He needs to address it because of that. It's kind of like if you're a manager in a work environment and there's like a toxic person on your team. The last thing you want to do is confront that person and deal with that problem, but it's the thing you have to do. Or if you're in a dating relationship, which for whatever reason needs to end, the last conversation you want to have is that conversation which would end that relationship, but it's the one conversation you need to have. Usually the conversation you least want to have is the conversation you most need to have. And talking about conversations we don't want to have, when we send out our graduating students, we give them this book. I was given it when I graduated as well. And it's by Richard Foster. It's not his most famous book, but it's a good one. It's um, The Challenge of the Disciplined Life, Christian Reflections on Money, Sex, and Power. Money, sex, and power. And I think these three things are lumped together with good reason. We don't want to talk about them. They're very personal. We want to defend ourselves from sort of questions about these parts of our lives. And I think it's because these are things which have deep potential to take our ultimate attention away from Jesus Christ and what he promises us. None of these things are wrong in and of themselves. They're all good things in their right context. Money, sex, and power. But each one promises, can promise, a salvation or fulfillment that they can't actually provide and can lead us away from the salvation and fulfillment that we can only find in Jesus. And for this reason, I think it's really important in any approach to Christian living that we talk about these things and we address these things and we figure out how we lay these things down towards Jesus. Does anyone know that uh, when people become like a monk or a nun or actually a Catholic priest, what the three vows they make are? I'm hearing muttering. It's uh, poverty, chastity, and obedience, right? It's money, sex, and power. Not poverty in the sense we normally use it. It's a kind of denial of the right to own possessions, um, chastity and obedience, obedience to your superior, laying down your own autonomy. You know, there's, there's a reason why these things get focused on, because they're the things that, left unchecked, can steal our ultimate attention away from Jesus. And you'd be happy that we're only talking about one of these things today, but it's important. We need to talk about it. So uh, what does God's word say about money? What are we reading in Proverbs? First, I just want to talk about Proverbs a little bit more generally, and I apologize if you've been through some of this stuff already in the series. But the book of Proverbs exists as a, a piece of what's called the wisdom literature of ancient Israelite thinking, which has this focus on wisdom, not as this general idea of sort of like nice tips, but as this personified quality that exists in and through God. That is simultaneously the logic by which the universe functions and it binds the cosmos together and also the logic by which we ought to live, um, to live abundant lives and to be our true selves. It's really like a big idea which on another whole sermon finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ who is the word, the logos, the logic of God. And here we have these reflections on it in Proverbs. But it's not like learning mathematics where you can figure out all the parts. It's kind of like you can just be hinted at it and you can be told things which prompt wisdom in you. And that's what these proverbs are doing. They're like little seeds, little nuggets, little kernels, which which prompt us towards wisdom. Which is actually quite different from these proverbs being laws. And I think one of the biggest mistakes we make when we read the proverbs is to treat them like they're little laws. But that's not how we really approach sayings like today. For example, like if you think of sayings we have, like give a man a fish and you'll feed him for a day, teach a man to fish and you'll feed him for a lifetime. It's not about men and fish. I mean, you could teach a man to fish and he might one day go hungry. You know, that could happen. It doesn't really take away from the wisdom of the saying because it's not a law, it's a saying law. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink, Right? You might not be physically strong enough to lead a horse to water, you know, you might not be able to do that, but that's not the point of the saying. The saying is trying to communicate this wisdom of, like, the limits of control you can have over another person and accepting that. Or one thing that I was often told as a high school teacher, which was, no, not as a high school teacher, as a high school student by the teachers, was, don't lean back on your chair, you'll fall and break your neck, Right? (laughs) Now, if you're reading that as a law, it's not true, necessarily. I mean, it could be. I mean, it's not, a rule doesn't always happen. And this was something I was quite happy to point out to the teachers. But that wasn't the point. The point wasn't that it was a rule that I was breaking or keeping. It was a kernel of wisdom. It was saying, they were trying to communicate. I'm still not convinced whether they're right. But it was not worth the risk of leaning back on your chair for the potential of danger or maybe just the disruption in the classroom. So, with that in mind, let's look at what these proverbs are telling us and let's listen for the kernel of wisdom they're trying to show us. So, we have, so feel free to look along in your bulletin. I don't know if we can get them up on the screen as well as we go through them. But we have here um, the wealth of the rich is their fortified city, but poverty is the ruin of the poor. I mean, this is communicating something very important that I don't actually think is said enough in church context, that there really is something stabilizing about wealth compared to poverty. Something securing, something that that you have when you have the means you need that people in poverty don't have. And that's a good thing. People who are in forced poverty, are in constant risk of, of ruin. I know when I was in the Philippines for a, um, a, a missions trip working with people in, in some slums there, some people who really were in deep poverty, the situation was that according to the laws of the land, you could offer someone a job for five months um, without giving them any benefits. But if, but if they worked for five months in one day, all of a sudden you had to give them benefits, right? So what does that mean? Everyone gets fired after five months, right? They get these jobs for five months, and then they lose them. And so what would happen is when they had that job for five months, things were kind of fine. They, they kind of had enough food, maybe even a little bit extra to buy resources for school for the kids and things like that. But always around the, the corner was the reality that ruin was coming. Because that day would come when you wouldn't have that job anymore, and you might have a dry spell of six or seven or five months where there was no income. And it really was a struggle to even survive. There is a reality, there is a wisdom here, that to have wealth is to actually to have um, a stability that is not afforded to those in poverty. The next uh, verse there, the wage of the righteous leads to life and the gain of the... Wa-. Oh, sorry, I'll read. Sorry, I've got a slightly different translation here. The wages of the righteous is life, but the earnings of the wicked are sin and death. This is pointing to the moral neutrality of money. It's, not real, it's really a reflection of the one who holds it. The righteous person can use money, steward money for things that bring life and goodness and justice for the one, the wicked person, it can lead to sin and death. It's really a reflection of ourselves. In chapter 11, wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Though wealth can provide some stabilizing influence, it cannot ultimately save us. It cannot provide ultimate stability. Only the righteousness we have in Jesus Christ can give us that. And we have one person gives freely, it gains even more, another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. And this is a good example of it's not a law. It's not saying everyone who gives is going to get more money and everyone who uh, withholds is going to lose their money. It's just pointing out Because if you just do the math, in theory, people who give away more should have less money because they've given it away, whereas people who hold it in should have more because they haven't given it away. But it's saying that doesn't really work like that, because this communicates something which is much bigger about how you're thinking about money, and how you're holding it, and how you approach it, that actually results in in not having a correlation where if you give a lot, then you have less, and if you don't give stuff, then... um, you have more. It doesn't work like that. It reminds me of the parable of the, um, the talents where one person was given money and they, they buried it in the ground, right? Not wanting to touch it because they were scared to lose it and they ended up losing it anyway. We have in um, chapter 13, it says, an unplowed field produces food for the poor, but injustice sweeps it away. And I think the real sense here, and it comes out in other translations, is, is an unpiled field has this potential to produce food for the poor, but they don't have access to it because of injustice. Um, another translation says, the fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, yield much food, but it swept away through injustice. And this is showing us something real, that for, for many, I think most in poverty, they don't have control over their situation. They don't have the ability to, to find wealth that's actually matters of justice and injustice, which are withholding the wealth that they could have. And we have in uh, chapter 30, give me neither poverty nor riches, feed me with the food that is needful for me, less, oh sorry, I'm reading my translation. Again. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. You know, wealth can lead us to this lie of self-sufficiency, this feeling that we don't need God because we have more than enough. Whereas at the same time, poverty can lead us to desperation and lead us to wrong others for our own gain. There's something deeply wrong at either end. And this is why I love Proverbs. There's just something wise about them. Because I don't know about you, but I feel like sometimes in church and Christian circles, the narrative we hear about money can be a bit confusing. On the one hand, we talk about money as if it's like a shallow thing and only shallow people would pursue money. It has no sort of like meaningful value for deep things. And, uh, you know, people who try and find happiness through money will fail those poor money-driven people. But at But in another conversation, we'll talk about how poverty is this bad thing in the world and we want to reduce poverty, which means we recognize on some level the importance of people getting more resources, more material wealth to get what they need. And that's a good thing. For most of the world, the problem isn't too much money, it's not enough. You can't blame people in poverty for wanting more wealth. So on one side, we're saying it's a shallow thing. On the other side, we're saying it's a necessary thing almost for someone's sort of salvation, not the fullest of salvation in Jesus, but what they need to, to break this cycle in the world. And we don't often bring these ideas together into a coherent understanding of money, which is why I love these proverbs. They proclaim the sort of moderation. They recognize the problems that I've in. They don't pretend that money has no meaningful value that it's not an important thing in the world that people need. But it also knows that money cannot save us. Give me neither riches nor poverty. Turns out there's a lot of wisdom in this wisdom literature. These proverbs recognize that poverty is a moral failure, the tragedy of the poor person who often really has no freedom to get themselves out of their situation. But for those of us who have means, and, and I would put out there that on a global scale at least, I think this includes most of us who have some level of means. Proverbs asks us these questions. Is your money drawing you closer to God, making you more dependent on Him, or is it doing the opposite? Is your wealth making you making it easier for you to obey God or more difficult? Because just as poverty can restrict your freedom, so too can wealth. I know a man, he's uh, in his early 60s, who makes uh, quite a lot of money. And he's actually quite open about the fact that he hates his job and is miserable. And at many stages of his life, he could have changed jobs to do something which made less money and probably would have kept him happier. But because of the power that money has on us, the way that it confuses us, he didn't feel like he had the freedom to do that. It's really hard to choose to go down in income. He'd set up his life based on the large income he had and convinced himself that a reduction in income wasn't possible. And it really doesn't matter what amount it is. We have this strong feeling inside of us that going down is not really an option that we could choose. If it's forced upon us, then we deal with it. But to choose it for ourselves doesn't feel like an option. And I mean, this is a man who could have halved his income and still made well more than most Americans. We deceive ourselves. It's hard to go down in income, which makes us less open to what God can call us to do if it involves a lower income. It's funny. Like, even if God called you to do something which would require going to an income, which was actually the income your family had five years ago, it feels like a really hard thing to do, even if you were fine with that income five years ago. It's funny how it plays with our mind. Like, we think that if we get a pay rise or we get that job with a higher pay or something like that, then... You know, we'll have this more freedom, more freedom to give or do good things, all this kind of stuff. But what really happens generally, unless you're very disciplined about it, is that we expand our lives a bit more. We fill out the uh, the income that we have, and we wonder how we ever lived on that old income. And we limit the number of acceptable things that God is allowed to ask us to do before it becomes unreasonable in our minds. And in light of this, I really think we need to be a questioning people, people who question ourselves. How can I use the resources God gives me to serve God's purposes in the world, for me and for others? Recognizing that most of the world, for most of the world the problem isn't not too much money, but it's not enough. How can I use those resources to seek justice and not to support injustice? How can I use them to make me more dependent on God? Can I really ask myself the question, what do I want more? What what money can offer me? Or the good news that Jesus has? Because the real heart of this is that the fullness of life that Jesus offers is more precious than silver and gold. And it's fixating on that and seeing that more clearly that makes this make sense. We really need to wrestle with these questions because eh, I'm testifying to myself here. We can be really quick to justify ourselves on this issue, I think, to, to look at our lives and decide that we have a level of sort of normalcy, and we're okay with that, and we don't need to question. But I think, if nothing else, we need to be committed to really look, examining ourselves and questioning ourselves on, on this. And I think if we really look at those questions, I think it leads us to, to two related responses. Generosity and simplicity. I mean, we often get to generosity when we're talking about money in the church, and I think that's, that's right. That's with, with good reason. This realization that our money is often better at serving others than ourselves, to be used to eradicate poverty for others, to give to worthy causes. And I think nothing expresses a right attitude to money more than giving it to those in need. But I want to highlight one aspect of generosity that, that has piqued my curiosity and it's the reality that's been shown time and again that as people's income goes up, uh, they give a lot smaller percentage of their money away to, to different causes. And you would think, you know, if you do the math, like, that, that, that this wouldn't have to be the case. So, like, if you were earning, I don't know, $40,000 and you gave away 10%, $4,000, you'd have $36,000 for your family. And let's say you had a really good day and you doubled your income, and you're on $80,000. You could give away 20%, that's $16,000. You have $64,000 left over, which is much more than what you would have had before by giving a significantly higher percentage. I know taxes makes it more complicated than this, but the principle still applies. Taxes make everything more complicated. But the principle applies. When you go up in income, you could give a higher percentage and still have more for your family. But it doesn't happen. We don't do that. We actually give a smaller percentage of of what we of what we have we grow into what we have and I think that's worth thinking about the other one uh simplicity this this um I want to highlight this book here which is by John Stott who who died a few years ago and this was kind of his you know deathbed writing Um, it's called the radical disciples some neglected aspects of our calling and he's highlighting some things that he he thinks have kind of dropped out of our vernacular in Christian life. And one of those things is, is simplicity, valuing the simple life. And this really got me, you know, a few years ago now, thinking about this issue of simplicity. Because simplicity is, is interesting. It's not really focused on, like, doing without. It's, about, it's focused on what do you need and doing with what you need and getting rid of distractions beyond that. It's good to have enough. You should have enough. Simplicity proclaims that. But the more we can cut out of our lives those things we don't need, the more we can focus on the things that actually matter, that matter to God, to focus us on trusting on, on Jesus rather than the things that we have. I, I, I'm pretty into technology I have um, my computer. Now, my computer is, I got it three years ago, which means it's three years old. Just some simple math for you. And it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a Surface Pro 3, if you care about that stuff. Now, they just released the Surface Pro 5, which is faster than the Surface Pro 3. And I was thinking, I had this plan, I'm like, oh, three years, that feels like a reasonable time for me to get a new computer, I could get a Surface Pro 5, this will be great. But then I stopped and thought, you know, it's faster. Uh, I stopped and I thought, my computer does everything I need. There's nothing that I actually do that it doesn't do. I'm happy with it, it works. Why do I want this new thing? Because I want it. And so I decided, I'm not getting it. Unless my computer breaks, I'm not getting a new computer. Feel free to go and break my computer. I can show you where it is. (laughs) But uh, because it's like, I'm trying to challenge myself. Like, what do I really need? I have friends, I'm not quite at this stage, but I'm inspired at it, who've gotten rid of their smartphones and replaced them with dumb phones, old flip phones and stuff like that. And I think that's like, you know, at least for my generation, that's quite inspirational to say, I don't actually need this thing. Uh, and my wife, she's not here. She's actually at uh, her baby shower in Indiana. She, uh, uh, we have a baby during October, our first. And baby clothes are really adorable and fun to buy. And they don't generally need anywhere near as many clothes as we want to buy for them. Right? And so we actually made the decision not to find out the gender of the baby, at least partly to avoid the motivation to buy baby clothes, both for ourselves and for my mother-in-law. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, it's just tempting to get more stuff than we need. And I think there's a deep Christian virtue in simplicity and just saying, don't need that. My life is actually clearer without that. It's called stuff for a reason. It stuffs up how we view the world. And so that's really where I want to land on this. I want to invite you to consider more deeply practicing generosity and practicing simplicity. Practicing generosity, I particularly want to invite you to think about and challenge you to buck the trend and be a person or a family who's committed to giving a higher percentage, whatever that means for you, if your income goes up. Why not? Or to practice simplicity, or and to practice simplicity. I just invite you, maybe to start small, identify something in your life that you don't need and get rid of it simplify. Get rid of some stuff in your life. Make that something that you aspire to more and more. Money is tough to talk about, and natural responses to raise defenses, and that's why we need to talk about it. It can take our ultimate attention away from the good news of Jesus, whether it's because someone's in poverty that they can't get out of, because we have too much and we depend on it. For the one in poverty, the cure is being brought out of poverty, something they often don't have control over, and so we should work for that for them. But what I think is for the majority of us, myself included, certainly on a global scale is that we can put too much trust in our resources and we need to practice generosity and simplicity. And when we do this, it's not about doing without. It's not about a lack. It's about a gain of the promises God has for us and fixing our eyes on that and seeking that more than anything else, that we're willing to cut off that which entangles to be Focused on that goal of what the great promises that God has for us. Because they are so much better. So it is for the joy that is set before us that we practice generosity and simplicity. Amen.